The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to start in verse 1 together. We are continuing this week in our series, Holy Reflections, God's Design for Singleness, Sex, and Relationships. Last week, we laid a foundation for the rest of the series by studying 2 Corinthians 3 together and seeing that when we, as God's people, live free of bondage and deception by the power of the Spirit of God, we are holy reflections to the world of God's glory and goodness. Now, this idea of living spirit-filled and empowered lives to the glory of God applies to every area of our existence. However, in a world that is exceedingly confused about God's good design in regards to singleness, sex, and relationships, it is crucially important that we reflect God's truth when it comes to these matters. We are viewing these things together not only through a lens of practical scriptural advice, so that the Christian avoids the devastation that comes through deception regarding these things, but also through the lens of how our obedience or lack of it plays a substantial role in revealing God's glory in the earth. And also, it plays a part in his overall redemptive purposes. So there's a lot of stake here. Uh, We're not just preaching through this so that we all don't mess our own lives up. We also want to be equipped by the power of God with the wisdom of God to help others to avoid those same traps. So today, we are going to focus on singleness through a biblical lens. Now, there are few subjects with less confusion surrounding them than this one. Um, When talking through this the other day with a friend, uh, he told me about a a humorous situation on a TV show that I think most of you will be familiar with that kind of highlights this. So um, hopefully I don't butcher it, but I know I can do good enough to at least get the point across. So have you, if most of you in here at least heard of the show The Office, Ran a bunch of seasons, right? Was, was quite funny. Uh, definitely, you know, few, few shows today are, are worth the time, but that one was pretty good. Good, um, good social commentary, I think. And so, uh, if, if, I'll just real quick, if you're unfamiliar potentially with the characters, there's, there's a guy, he's like the, the manager of the office. His name is Michael Scott. He's pretty manic, kind of emotionally unstable. Um, and... You know, represents probably that little bit, of, little bit of wild side of all of us, but uh, he just exemplifies that. So there's that guy, and then there's a secretary named uh, Pam, and uh, this interchange happens between them. And so uh, in, in this certain episode, it's a Christmas party, and um, Michael is bummed out because he had begun a relationship with a, a lady named Holly, and then she moved away. And then when she came back, she was in a relationship with another guy, and so he was super bummed about this, and he's like... He, he's always like at, at level 10 and 11 with his emotions all the time, right? So he's just, he's really f- kind of freaked out about it and, and all messed up about it. And so through the course of the episode, this, this conversation comes up and he's, he's explaining to Pam uh, this story he heard. And he says, yeah, heard this story one time of this woman and she slipped on some ice and uh, she hit her head and she went into a coma forever. And her husband visited her every day until she died. 
And Pam looks at him and goes, that's such a sad story. And Michael says, yeah, well, at least he was married. (laughs) And I think that represents to some degree the way many of us think about singleness, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's kind of that attitude. Um, (laughs) I mean, isn't that accurate? So, So many people view being single as a fate worse than death. Uh, and even if a single person, even a, if a person that is single, if they themselves don't view it that way, many others see them as somehow not okay if they're single. There's this unfortunate societal expectation that if you're an adult, you're, you're in some type of romantic relationship or else you're broken or something's wrong or whatever. Um, and that's, that's a real bummer. If, if my funny anecdote out of the uh, hit TV series, The Office, doesn't convince you that maybe our ideas about singleness are convoluted and confused, um, perhaps this will. I've got some hard facts instead of a funny show quotes, okay? So check this out. 58% of women and 48% of men in the U.S. use online dating services. The biggest two of these are at a cost of $50 and $30 per month just to be in that access and, and have, be able to have your name in that pool and, and making matches, okay? Revenue from these sites topped $1.65 billion in 2012. That was billion with a B from uh, the top three dating sites. <clears throat> Here's where it gets a little bit weird. Data suggests that a majority of people inflate their salary by 20% and their height by two inches on their profiles, while at the same time saying they weigh less than they do. Now, I want, I want to make sure you guys understand that I'm, I'm not against matchmaking sites at all. I think they can be a legitimate tool for finding someone else who is interested in pursuing marriage. However, the sheer numbers of this, I think, are pretty telling as far as the, the kind of drive of our culture towards this idea that if, if I'm not in a relationship, then I better get that way, or else I'm going to be judged, or maybe in their own mind they really believe that's, that's a serious issue if I'm alone. Uh, I think even more troubling than the staggering numbers of, of you know, 58 and 48% respectively people in, involved in online dating and, and the money that's spent on it, even more troubling than that is the fact that a large percentage of people are willing to lie in order to make themselves more attractive and thus escape what they perceive to be the intolerable state of singleness. That's concerning. If people are willing to throw aside integrity simply because they hope that'll increase their chances a little bit of getting out of this, this, this hell of singleness, then um, that's, that's troubling. And it says something about what drives us as a people. And I don't, unfortunately... I don't know that we're doing that much better in God's church when it comes to these things as we are outside of it. That should change, and hopefully, by the help of God's word, um, it can change here. Let's approach God's word together, and let's see how he thinks about it. Now, before we do that, before we get right into the scriptures, I, I want to spur all of you on to love and good works, because here I realize that there is a potential tendency to focus in on elements of this sermon series that you feel apply most directly to your situation. For example, married folks might be tempted to check out during a sermon on singleness and just kind of wait for the ones coming up on marriage. The truth is, though, we do not only study God's word that we may gain wisdom for ourselves. If we're living in authentic community with other believers and really walking through life together, 
then a married person needs to know what God says about singleness just as much as a single person so that they can be a source of encouragement to them and of truth. Part of how we are holy reflections to the world of God's love and goodness is being able to discuss these issues, sometimes difficult issues, with others in a biblically faithful way and in a truthful way. And so uh, I, I would just encourage you that no matter where you find yourself, uh, as far as relational status is concerned, uh, I, I would encourage you that every part of all that we're going to say regarding these issues throughout this sermon series is applicable to you, if for no other reason than God's called you to be a missionary. Right? Amen. You excited about that? You mad about it? All right. All right, so we're going to read 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to start in verse 1, and right now we're just going to uh, go up to verse 9, okay? Now, we're doing this for context. He gets in, Paul gets into some instructions on marriage here, but, but in order to kind of get everything we need to get to, we're, we're just going to read it together. So, starting in verse 1, going to verse 9, here we go. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Praise God for his word. Uh, one thing we need to keep in mind as we work through portions of this chapter together that Paul, he says right in the beginning there that concerning the things about which you wrote. So he's responding to specific questions asked by the Corinthian church. So some of what he addresses may not be fully dealt with, uh, but only enough to answer their questions. I believe out of other parts of the scriptures, we can, we can have a full theology of marriage and singleness and all these things, but he's answering some specific questions. And so in some of this, he, he doesn't say everything he could say about it, but that's true about almost anything, uh, unless you're going to, you know, write a really, really long letter. So it is not surprising that the questions they asked uh, surrounded sexuality and relationships because as we discussed last week, Corinth was a highly perverted and sexualized city with the temple of Aphrodite present and the practice of ritual prostitution and sexual deviancy being really prevalent there in Corinth. And so it's not surprising that the questions they asked Pastor Paul had to do with things like marriage, sex, things along that lines. And that's why there's going to be a lot of instruction we're going to pull out of these letters to the Corinthians as we go through this series. This was stuff they were dealing with. We serve Jesus now. How do we deal with this <laughs> and that and this, right? So they, they had problems. Uh, but thank God they, they were asking uh, their pastor to, to teach them how to live like Jesus in regard to those things. So uh, Paul is saying it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. So the NASB here and, and other translations, they, he says is, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay, this is not uh, 
you know, if you're a Christian, buy yourself a, a large rolling bubble to go around in so that you do not come into contact with someone of the opposite sex. That's not what he's saying. This, this not touch a woman is, he's saying it's good not to have sex with a woman. And vice versa, you can, you can flip the genders in here. It applies. Uh, he, he just picks to say it that way. Uh, but because in chapter 6, right before this, he just got done hammering them about sexual immorality, and he tells them a few verses before that fornicators are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, and because of what he says afterwards, where he goes into talking about these instructions regarding marriage, we know that not only is he saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman in a sexual sense, he's actually, that's, it's even broader than that, he's talking about marriage. So here's what I'm saying, get this. Paul says, it is good not to be married. Interesting. Verse 7 and 8 also backs this up. Let's just look at it real quick. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. Paul, at this point, is single. Okay? So, Paul says it's good not to be married. Some of us, that's, that's a shocker right there, that anywhere in the Bible you would hear somebody say that. Paul did, and he meant it. Uh, he's backed up by Jesus and others. So uh, the truth is there has been much misunderstanding around this throughout church history. It's really interesting that Paul gives these instructions based on his background. This, this is ev- the fact that Paul is able to talk about marriage and singleness in this way is really distinct evidence that he has been pulled out of uh, a legalistic framework and, and the gospel's done work in his heart because um, Paul comes out of a, a, a tradition that uh, would have been based upon uh, the Talmud, and, and the Talmud said that if you're not married by 20, you're in sin, because Genesis says it's not good for a man to be alone, and there's the command to be fruitful and multiply. So the Hebrew teaching in Paul's time, and remember Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he would have been under this idea that if you're not married by the time you're 20, it's, it is sinful. That was the instructions of the Talmud. Um, it's, it's, we're not sure about this, but possibly, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of reasons why, it is possible that Paul, before his conversion, was married. Um, so reasons for that. One, in, in, in the book of Acts, he says that he, it said he voted concerning the fate of Christians in Acts. So he's describing his former life, he, and, and he's describing essentially how God has, has changed him by grace. And he said, you know, back before Jesus came and dealt with me and, and changed my heart, I, voted, I was voting against Christians, right? I was voting that their fate should be bad for following Jesus. And so the fact that he was casting that vote, that's evidence that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. He could not have been a part of the Sanhedrin had he not been married. Again, we also know he came from this tradition that said Paul, I mean, and Paul was a, he was a rule follower, man. He was, he was a law guy. And so uh, the reality is it's, it's, it's likely because of those things that at some point in his life, Paul was married. We don't know that for sure. The scriptures are silent on it. And so we're, we're kind of guessing based on context clues. The reality is if he was married at one point, either she died at some point or she left him when he converted to Christianity. Either of these are possibilities. Uh, But no matter whether or not he was actually married, I I think based on what we know, it's likely he was. Whether or not he was, though, we know out of the tradition that he came and and the the teachings of the Talmud and, and just everything he came out of for him... For him to look at marriage and singleness the way he describes it in 1 Corinthians 7 is, is absolutely 
evidence of God changing him because this is not what he was taught coming up. This is not what cultural tradition was for him. It was, it was very outside of that. And so uh, we see the leading of the Holy Spirit in the way he's given these Corinthians instructions regarding these things. So um, there has been this tendency throughout church history for Christians to consider either singleness or marriage as one being more holy than the other. The Catholic Church has, for most of its history, forbid both males and females who are clergy from marrying, seeing that as a holier path of devotion to God. Uh, Many Protestants, even if we don't say it officially, have this tendency to be against or at least hesitant about unmarried people serving as leaders and especially as pastors uh, because we have elevated marriage to be the normative and better path. Some of that probably has to do with a lot of Protestant doctrine being reactions to Catholic doctrine. And so there, and sometimes we went, you guys do that, we're going to do this over here. And it's like, well, hold on, over here is closer to better, right? So uh, sometimes we have to work through those things. But you, you see this, right? Both, and both of these are underneath the Christian umbrella, but we've got two completely different ideas about this idea of, well, is, is it more holy or is it, is it a, a more normative path for somebody that's following God to be married or for them to be single? So that brings up the question, which is it? Is it better to be single or is it better to marry? Let's look at verse 7. Paul says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, which is it? Single, to be single or to be married? Which one's better? Paul says, yes. Right? So, here's, here's what Paul says. It says, it comes down to the gifting and calling of the person. It comes down to the gifting and calling of the person. It does, it does seem that... Most people will at some point in their life get married, just statistically. That's changing in our modern culture. People are waiting longer to get married. Uh, some people are foregoing um, marriage altogether, so the, the numbers are tipping a little bit, but still, statistically, most people at some point in their life will get married. However, the fact that more people marry and less stay single does not mean that one is holier than the other. As a matter of fact, because of Paul's background and, and the opinion of many was that marriage was preferable, he spends a lot of time laying out the advantages of being single here in 1 Corinthians 7. So you've got, you've got these ideas floating around. People are thinking, I mean, and, and you see it as you read through this. I would encourage you to go back and just take 1 Corinthians 7 all together and take a look at it. You had people believing both ends of this thing, right? There was, there was widows that thought they were unholy because they were widows, so they were running out trying to find a husband. You had married people thinking, okay, I follow Jesus now, so I'm just going to follow him alone, so I'm ditching my wife. Who knows if the motives were mixed on that, right? But, you know, the reality is some people were trying to use that as justification. Uh, and, and Paul puts a, a hard stop to all of that and says, hold on a second. One of these is not holier than the other. It comes down to what God's doing in the life of the person that you're talking about. And, and he has even more specific instructions later on. He says, essentially, how did you come to the Lord? Right? Were you married when you got saved? Well, then stay that way. Were you single? He says in, in this certain context that there's a good argument then for staying single. So we'll work through all that. Don't hyperventilate. We'll be all right. It's going to be all right. So uh, Paul does spend a lot of time here talking about the advantages of being single in 1 Corinthians 7. So the reality is some people are gifted by God's Spirit to be single. 
in Matthew 19, Jesus says that some became eunuchs by choice for the sake of the kingdom of God. And right before he says that, he says, listen, a lot of people aren't going to like this statement. And then he says it, and then he says, let who can accept that accept it. Because he knows, like, that's, that's a rough one for some people. But he talks about the fact that, you know, some eunuchs were made eunuchs. They, they were, some were eunuchs at birth. Some were made that way by men, and they didn't want to be. Some people made that choice so that they could focus solely on the benefit of the kingdom of God. He says, I know this is a hard saying, but kind of it, it is what it is. Um, there are, so there are people that are gifted to be single. There are people who are gifted to be married. And what we need to see is that being single even for a season, or being married, are both gifts from God. Both of them. Our enemy would like to stir covetousness in us no matter where we find ourselves. Always. And so often, the single person covets the life of a married person, and the married person covets the life of a single person. And in both cases, your joy in this life and effectiveness for God's kingdom will be diminished if not extinguished, if you fall into this trap. I don't think it's uncommon for single people to look at the life of married people, especially the projected life of married people, and say, only if. If I could just get there, I wouldn't be so sad, I wouldn't be so lonely, I wouldn't feel so broken. You've got married people looking at the life of single people like, if I could just get back to there. I would have so much more joy and so much more happiness and la da 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 da. Both of those are sinful, they're coveting, and the source of that is the enemy. Where you're at, find gratitude. Where you're at, trust God. We'll, we'll, we'll hit that more, okay? The truth is, one is not better than the other. However, much of the time, it doesn't seem like we really believe this. The culture at large, but I believe the church in particular, has not done a good job in the way we talk about and deal with singleness. Single people are often made to feel lesser than and like second-class citizens, even among God's people. I think most of the time it's unintentional. Sometimes we're just not thoughtful and circumspect, both from a theological approach to singleness, but also just a practical approach. Sometimes we just got to think a little more before we say stuff, but sometimes questions like, are, are, are you still single? Or any prospects on your radar yet? Elbow, elbow? You know, and it's, it's that all the time, kind of every time you see them, it's this, it's this question of kind of what's going on in that sphere. What does that communicate, right? You're just, you're just interested in their life and, and you're right along with them and hoping for them, but at the end of the day, you're communicating to them like, man, I am, well, I am still single, so what? And why do they keep asking me, <laughs> right? Like, what's, what's wrong with me? Um, the problem is we sow, in, we sow this idea into people that their singleness is a problem to be solved instead of a gift to be celebrated. And that can really lead to a lot of problems, depression, loneliness, uh, just people feeling hopeless, um, having real serious identity issues and security issues. Uh, we need... We need to celebrate singleness the way that God does and realize that whether it is something that God has gifted someone for as a lifelong thing or it's a season that they're in as God is, is preparing them for uh, marriage at some point, singleness is something to be celebrated. It's an opportunity to take, not something to sit and, and, and fidget nervously until it ends, right? Or to self, be self-loathing until it's over. Uh, it can be and should be a beautiful time. Uh, let's read verses 25 through 31 together, okay? We're in the same chapter. 
Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. This is unmarried people. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Okay, first, let me, there's a disclaimer here. Verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. Okay, so it probably has to do with Roman persecution, the fact that the church was under heavy persecution at that point, and Paul's saying, especially for you guys right now, with what's going on, um, planning a wedding probably shouldn't be highest priority because we may all be dead soon. So, like, let's preach the gospel hard and, and hope we make it, right? So some of that has to do with what he's talking about, but, but I would also press us to say to some degree, yes, Roman persecution was was crazy at that point. Christians were being targeted very specifically, but is, has there ever been a time throughout history that the forces of darkness are not making war against God, that there isn't an urgency when it comes to the, the, the message of the gospel going forth and kingdom work needing to be done? I think there is an urgency. So we, we got to take all this together, but let's keep going. Verse 28. Uh, but if you marry, and, then this, and this, you got to read it all. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's saying, look, man, if you're going to have an eternal perspective, a kingdom perspective, it might be better for you not to focus on finding somebody to marry. It might be better to focus on uh, the Lord and, and, and being about the Father's business. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world." How he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Okay? Very key that he said, I'm not saying this to put restraint on you. That's how we can loop back to verse 7 and understand that every time we try to make one better than the other or draw thick black lines for what everyone should do regarding this, we end up in trouble, right? It has to do with how each person is gifted, where they're at in their life, and what God's calling them to do. If you marry, you haven't sinned. If you don't marry, you haven't sinned. But there's things to consider other than just what you want to do right at the moment, right? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than you, right? Because God has swept us into his redemptive purposes in the earth, and, and there's more to consider than just how I feel at the given moment. So part of what we need to understand from this is that our relational status is a big deal, but it's not the main deal. And I think for a lot of people, it becomes the main deal. A lot of their thoughts are consumed by it. A lot of our identity in this world is driven by that relational status. Are you single or are you married? How many applications have you filled out that, that have that, right? I mean, all of your social media, that's a box that you tick, right? So it's, there's, there's this deal where it, 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 it like stays at the forefront of our conscience and begins to really define a lot about who we are. And I'm not saying that it's not a factor. It surely is. And it's, it is a big factor, but it's not the main factor. 
For many single people, their relational status is worn like a scarlet A upon their chest. There is shame brought on by insecurities and the constantly reinforced message that there must be something wrong with them. We get a glimpse into one of Paul's motivations in verse 26 when he's talking about this. Again, I mentioned it a bit, but in, in verse 26, he, he tells them, in view of the present distress, so you've got you to gotta take all of this in view of that context, but then also not throw it out because we're not being persecuted by Roman centurions. We still have reason for urgency today, do we not, when it comes to God's kingdom, the preaching of the gospel, living lives with a focus upon eternity. Uh, I would argue, yes, Roman persecution was bad then, but we're also 2,000 years ahead as far as the timeline is concerned. And so for me, we're, we're that much closer uh, to God wrapping this thing up. And so from a, a gospel ambassador getting uh, as many people as possible the hope of Christ, there, there maybe even is an argument for more urgency, more consideration when it comes to how we think about singleness and marriage and, and which way we go and when we do those things. It has to be a factor, and I think for a lot of people, the, the, the terrible, tragic truth is when they think about their relational status, whether they're single in this season, whether they wish they weren't, or whether they're headed towards marriage, the, the, a lot of the big idea here is being driven just by that, those desires, those hopes, surrounding relationships, surrounding your status when it comes to that, that should not be the biggest consideration. How is it that God has gifted me? What season am I in? And what does that mean for what God has called me to do in regards to his kingdom and me bringing his, his name glory? How does that fit in when I think about whether I'm single for now or I begin to pursue marriage or I am married, right? It comes down to how much is God's glory a factor when we think about these things? How much, how much less would people be sitting in, in, in a real dark, kind of bummed out mood all the time because they're single if God's eternal purposes were more so at the forefront of their mind and they could see their singleness as a part of what God's doing in the earth uh, as far as getting people the hope of the gospel. So um, Paul's response to kind of boil down what he says here in verses 25 through 31 is something like, guys, time is short. If you're married, great. If you're not married, great. Right? Time on this world is short and eternity is forever, so let's get our attention where it belongs. That's kind of, if, you, if you boil it down, that's what he's saying. You married? Super. Not married? Super. We got, we got big stuff going on. And, and, if, and if you're not married and you do get married? Super. But, but guys, there's a, there's a lot bigger things to consider. And, 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 and what I'm asking, what I'm pushing you to think about is when it comes to what consumes our thoughts, when it comes to what drives our decision-making and, and all of that. How much, how much is it eternity and God's kingdom and God's glory and the furthering of the gospel message that is, is the primary motivator of what we do, how we spend time, all of that, and how much of it is this driver based on a dissatisfaction sometimes with or, or, or this belief that you've been, this lie you've been sold that there's something broken because maybe you're not in a relationship, how much is it that driving you as opposed to a, an, an eternal viewpoint and a gospel-centered viewpoint? That's kind of the crux of what Paul's getting at here. Um, it's, it's a big deal, but not a big a deal as we make it. That's kind of what he's after, okay? Um. Let's, let's look at verses 32 through 35 together. Did we already read those? I went all the way, didn't I? 
Let's read them again. But I want you to, because they're good. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure Secure, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul here lists the ability to have undivided devotion to the Lord as an incredible asset. Jesus and many others throughout history were gifted by the Spirit to be single and focused completely on God's mission. That would be one of the first things I would bring up to somebody that is self-loathing in singleness. We worship Jesus, right? Jesus chose not to get married. He was on God's mission for the entirety of his life. I think his life was pretty full. I think when he got up back into the Father's presence, he heard, well done, right? Uh, I think he was probably glad about that. That's who we follow. And so to be single is not to be broken. To be single is not to have something wrong with you. And if you, some of you I know minimally have struggled with that thought, that your singleness has to be linked to something wrong with you. And it's because of bad messages from the culture. It's because of sometimes unthoughtful messages even from God's people. And so we need to let the word of God and the truth of God, like a, like a well-placed hit from a sledgehammer, break that stuff down into dust so that you can see things the way God sees them. Because you can be driven into a lot of really painful and dangerous both actions and thoughts by this misunderstanding that, that singleness somehow means something's wrong with you. It doesn't. It, may, means, it probably means something's right with you in very many cases. Uh, the fact that Jesus and many others throughout history were gifted by the Spirit to be single and focused completely on God's mission is something to be admired, not to be treated as an abnormality. It's something to be admired. Now, you, you may be working through this and thinking through this, so how do you know, and some of you maybe that aren't single but have... have loved people that are and, and are in relationship with them and talking to them about this, sometimes this question will come up. Well, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness, right? And I hear people joke. I mean, I mean most, most people are trying to pray, you know, most, we don't pray gifts of God away from us a lot of times, but a lot of people are like, you know, trying to pray the gift of singleness off of them, right? I don't want that one. So a lot of that has to do, though, with this idea that singleness is this wretched prison, right? And it's, it's this kind of torture, and, and you can never have joy if that was indeed. But if, you just, if God's gifted you for it, it will be great. If God's gifted you for it, he will supply the power for it to be a joyful existence. Will there be things you forego that other people don't uh, as a single person gifted by God? Yes, but does God ever take anything and not give something better in return? No. He doesn't ever do that. And so if God has gifted you and called you to be somebody that's single for your life, then, then the things that would, would cause you to feel sad in thinking about that, God will give better things even than if you were to disobey that gifting and calling and go for something to happen yourself. you got to believe that. To be single and to be in God's will is way better than to be married and be out of God's will. Any of you ever seen a real-life experience that illustrates that point to be true? Anybody seen a marriage that maybe God didn't put together? 
and the brokenness and the pain that can reverberate down for generations out of that situation. I'm not trying to scare you out of marriage. I'm trying to encourage you into God's will concerning these things because it's the only way you're going to find joy regarding them. So how do you know if you have this gift of singleness? For some, God makes it clear in various ways. There's a lot of different ways he could, he could make that clear to you as you walk through this journey of life. For some, like some of you may have heard of him, I don't know, but John Stott, a well-known writer, theologian. Uh, we're not 100% in line with everything he said, but the brother was a juggernaut for Jesus. For him, John, John Stott, it was a process of trying to explore when he was young. He tried to explore marriage a couple of times with a couple of different godly women. But through that process, he was able to find no peace from the Lord to go through with it. So he tried a couple times and just couldn't get to the place where he, he felt like God was in it. And he ended up saying, when, when interviewed about it, that in hindsight, he knew he would never have been able to travel and write and devote himself to ministry to the degree that he did if he had a wife and children to care for. He could, not have, he could not have done what the Bible would require of him for a wife and children and accomplished the other things he did for God's kingdom. And so up in his late 80s, 90s, he's asked these questions. He's able to look over his life and say, yes, I see that God did that for me so that I could accomplish what it is he asked me to do. He also said that because of the gospel, making those who follow Jesus a family, he had nieces and nephews through Christ throughout the world who called him Uncle John. And he said that this was a great comfort to him in times where he felt the pangs of regret over not having children. And even though, he, even though as he went on in age and, and got past the point where he was even exploring the possibility of marriage, realized that God had called him to singleness, that doesn't mean there wasn't times where there was pangs of regret, you know, issues of doubt trying to creep up, but he was greatly comforted by the fact that though he had no biological connection to them, he had, he had men and women all throughout the world that he called nieces and nephews and called him Uncle John, and they were a great comfort to him um, that he, he had family because of Jesus, and it was real. It, it didn't matter if they were his own biological children. It was a real and actual comfort to him, uh, and, and I can relate to that. I know that that's true. I know that, I know that gospel family, if, if you allow it to be, can be an incredible comfort. Um, even when some of what should come from the structure of a biological family may be absent. Uh, even if you do not have a calling or gifting from God to be single for life, if you are single now, these verses provide a healthy perspective with which to view this season of your life. And you might be asking, okay, okay, how, how do I get to... <laughs> Uh, what Paul's saying in like 25 through 35, right? Because essentially he's saying, listen, um, yes, if you're married or not married, it's a deal. It, it, it matters. It's a part of your life story, but it, it's not the biggest thing. How do we get to the point where we really believe that? Because let's be honest. If you're not married and want to be married, what's on your mind? A lot of times it's getting married, right? It's some hours on Pinterest, Pin that, right? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's looking at everybody else's wedding pictures. It's, it's fantasizing about how it'll be. And it's very interesting. If you ask most people, and I've done this, most of the time what they're thinking about is the wedding day. Man, that's one day. So come on, people. Let's think about it. When, when you do that, you're, you're linking up for life. And so there's a whole bunch of rest after that. And uh, I don't mean rest like fun nap time rest. I mean like just the rest of your life. So, And it's awesome. Marriage is good. Where you at, honey? 
Marriage is good. It's good. It's a good thing. And we'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks. But um, singleness, whether for a season or uh, somebody that's gifted by God for singleness for their whole life, can be just as good. And in some ways, when it comes to effectiveness, as far as that life is concerned, when it comes to eternal impact and God being able to use them for his glory in the earth, sometimes they can have even more impact than a married person. That's part of what Paul is saying here. And so, you might be asking, how do I think this way? How do I, if my desire for marriage is so strong, how do I not waste my singleness and how do I bring glory to God through my singleness? How do I get to where this isn't, that, that my relational status isn't the most an over-consuming thought? How do I get to where I have an eternal lens about it? How do I think the way that Paul's describing here, that it sounded like John Stott thought, and, it, and, and, and that Paul lived his life, and that Jesus lived his life, and, and many others throughout church history? I just picked a couple. I mean, we could spend all day naming people that forewent and... and, and put aside any desire they had for marriage and set themselves completely uh, apart for uh, the work of, of the ministry and for doing God's will. So um, how do you do that? How do you not waste your singleness? How do you bring glory to God through your singleness? The first thing you got to do is realize the danger of marriage becoming an idol. You need to understand that if you desire marriage and are not married, you are in danger of marriage being an idol for you. You are in danger of marriage being something you end up worshiping instead of Jesus. Getting to that, and, and the way that works is, for a lot of people, singleness is a functional hell. And for a lot of people, marriage is a functional savior. And you end up thinking, if I can just get married, all of the things that are a huge bummer about my life right now will no longer be a bummer. And if you get to the point that you're thinking that way, you will compromise and you will worship marriage or your idea of marriage, and it probably is idealized. I don't want to like judge you about that, but probably. I feel pretty good about that word in talking about it. Um, probably. Your idea, it's probably idealized. So you'll, you'll end up worshiping that. What does that mean? Well, you'll give time to it, talent to it, treasure to it. Your thought life will be consumed by it. You can end up worshiping your idea of marriage instead of Jesus, thinking that that'll be the Savior that gets you out of the hell you're living in. It's a bad deal. And, and, and if, if, if you're single and desiring marriage, that is a danger for you. I'm not saying you are doing that. You just need to be aware that it's, 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 it's a possibility. If you desire marriage more than you desire God's will, you will almost invariably compromise to get what you want. Secondly, i.e., uh, I'm actually 6'4". No, I'm 6'2", right? But a lot of people will lie or do whatever they got to do to try to get somebody to take a look at them. I make this and such so money, right? Or whatever it is. I'm 195 pounds. You believe that? You shouldn't. Okay. Suck it in for the rest of the sermon. Um, secondly, if you are consumed with love for God and love for people... Pause, I want to go back to that for a second. I don't know why you guys looked at me like that when I said all that, but I'm just going to guess that you didn't get it, so I'm going to hammer on it harder. Here's my problem, man. If you, if you desire marriage more than you desire God's will, you will invariably compromise to get what you want. And that doesn't just mean you'll lie on your Match.com thing and say you're taller and skinnier and richer than you really are. The real dangerous place you'll compromise is in the person, as in the other person, as in, well, they, they go to church, 
Woo, whoopity-doo. Well, they, they believe in God. James had something to say about that. You know what he said about it? So do the demons, and they shudder. If you end up worshiping marriage instead of worshiping Jesus, you'll be happy to marry somebody that doesn't love God as much as you do, that isn't going to pull as hard as you are towards Christ for the rest of your life. And you, wanna t- you think you're miserable single? Talk about being in a marriage where the Bible uses the language of being yoked together like two oxen trying to pull opposite directions. You want to talk about a hard life? That's rough. And that's what will happen. So don't let marriage become a God to you. Don't compromise. And don't end up worshiping that idea of marriage to the point where you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get married. And or you'll marry anybody they'll say yes. And somehow justify in your mind, well, and a lot of it does end up being because of the fear and insecurity mixed with this intense desire that becomes almost worshipful, you'll end up compromising stuff you never even thought you would. Settling because you believe this lie, well, they'll take me and no one else will, so here we go. That's, that, that should not ever be the thought process that leads to a lifelong covenant. It's too serious, man, for that. Don't think about it that way. Don't believe those lies about yourself. And don't let yourself be overly fixated with, with some imaginary, idealized version of marriage, okay? Don't worship that. It's, it's a bad God. It'll let you down. So that's that. You guys good on that? Why don't you say amen so I don't have to keep going on that? Because I can hang out there all day. Y'all know I can do it. <laughs> we can scrap the whole rest of this and we can just kick it right there. So <laughs> y'all better get right. Okay. Secondly, if you are consumed with love for God and love for people, which is the greatest commandment, you will find it very difficult to overemphasize your relational status. If you're consumed with love for God and love for people, you're going to find it hard to overemphasize your relational status in the grand scheme of things. If you're consumed with love for God and love for people, you're going to be able to bring yourself to a mindset that Paul lays out for us here, an eternal mindset, an others-focused mindset, a God's glory above my own desires mindset. Okay, Some of you don't, the the connection isn't there for how that works yet, and I get it, so I want to try to do something. I'm going to ask you to really go somewhere with me emotionally for a minute. Okay, So I want you to... I want you to actually go ahead and physically close your eyes because I'm going to describe something to you and I need you to imagine it and think about it, okay? Do this with me. Imagine the person that you love most in all the world. I want you to get their face in your mind. Think about them, the person you love most in all the world. Now imagine that you walk up to where they live, wherever that is. Do it in your mind. Walk up to the place where that person lives. And as you walk up to that place where the person you love more than anybody else where they live, you walk up and that structure that they live in is on fire. Imagine it. You see, as you look at it, that the fire has not yet reached them, but they are trapped. And without help, they are going to die in this fire. Imagine it. Here's my question to you. That person you love, they're trapped. What are you going to do? What will you be thinking If you couldn't get to them and you couldn't help pull them out yourself, you can open your eyes if you want. If you couldn't get to them, hopefully you would pull out your phone to call for help 
right? Because the person that you love more than anyone else in the world is trapped in that fire. You know you can't get to them. You're going to say the flames are too bad, whatever it is. You pull out your phone. You're calling for help, hoping to God somebody gets there quick enough. But here's my question to you. So you, you pull out that phone to call to try to get somebody to help the person you love the most that's trapped inside this fire. They are going to die if they don't get out of this thing. But, but you pull your phone out. Here's my question to you. What if you saw a message pop up while you're dialing 911 that said you had a match from a dating website? You pull out your phone. You're going to frantically call 911 to try to get help so that this person you love more than anyone else in the world doesn't die in this fire. And here's my question. There on the screen is a little icon that tells you whatever your dating site of choice is, you've got a message. Here's my question. What are you going to do? Are you going to hold off calling 911 because you've got to check that message real quick? Anybody, that's what you would do. I would seriously hope not. Or, or for those of you that are married, since that maybe doesn't equate straight across the board, just since there's a lot of you here, what if, what if, what if you pulled out your phone to dial that number and, and there's a text, the band is across the top of the thing that shows you a text from a lawyer saying that you just inherited $10 million from, from a, a relative, but, but you got to respond right now to get it. You're going to... Fire, text, fire, text. Is there, is there even a decision to be made there? How long are you going to have to think about whether I go into that text to find out about the $10 million when the person you love more than anybody else in the world has minutes maybe to live? You jumping on Match.com? Maybe it's that blonde guy I saw his profile picture. Or maybe it's that blah, 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 Right? This, this is Paul's point. This is Paul's point in this set of verses. All of us, whether we're single, married, or in between, we need to understand that we are surrounded daily with people in spiritual danger, no less than that person that you love being in a burning building. And we are called to love each of them like Jesus has loved us. Every single day, you're surrounded with people that in a spiritual sense are in a burning building, and if they don't get out, they're going to die. What, and where, Do you remember why we were talking about that? We're answering the question, how do, I get, how do I stop being so consumed with my relational status? How do I stop being, how, how do I get my thoughts to not always be directed towards where I wish I was? <laughs> Whether that's... Married and wishing you were single, just stop that. You're a sinner. Knock it off. Come talk to me, and we'll get through it. But mostly here, we're talking to the single folks. This, this fixation upon, if, if, I could, if I could get married, things would be better. If I could get married, I wouldn't feel so bad about myself. If I could get married, whatever it is, right? I, I know that none of you in the situation, in, in, the, in the situation I described, none of you are paying attention to anything other than the quickest route to get 911 called to get somebody out there to help that person you love. But the problem is, that, and that's, that's what Paul's appealing to. That's why he says things like, uh, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife, right? He says, I think in good view of this present distress, uh, and, and he goes on to say, verse 30, those who weep, uh, he, oh, verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, are we still in now on? We're still in now on. Those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. 
And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. That's his point. That's what he's getting to. Guys, this is urgent. Guys, there's real big stuff going on as far as God's redemptive plan and eternity is concerned and all of the people that God loves in that situation. God has called us as we understand the beautiful gift of Jesus coming and loving us when we were yet sinners, pulling us out of the clutches of death and sin and rescuing us. When we understand the perfect love of God that has been poured out on us, what that is supposed to do is cause a love for us, a passion for, to be inside of our hearts and a compassion for those who do not yet know that there's hope in Jesus, that do not yet have uh, an eternal affirmation that they're going to be with God forever. And so we need to let the urgency of the spiritual situation of so many and our love for them, let that be the thing that causes us not to be so fixated upon our own relational status, whatever that is, right? And, and he goes so far as to say, you, you that have a wife, just, just live like you don't. Now, you got to take that in the context of Paul's kind of on a rant right now about quit being so concerned about whether you're married or not married. Let's focus on eternal things. we got to take that verse, and let, that doesn't mean just neglect your duties. He just got done saying right before that, right, take care of each other, didn't he? So don't, we can't take one verse and, well, okay, good, right? That's how heresy happens. So don't do that, but he's, he's trying to get a point across. Live in this world, man, as if you're not living in this world. Buy as if you don't possess. Don't let that stuff matter to you that much. Yeah, be married or don't be married. Super. But eternity's on the line. And when we think that way, when love for God and love for people consumes us, we aren't so consumed by those other things that seem to so easily ensnare us all the time. That, friend, is how you get there. That's how you get free from compulsive and, and, and almost... Being obsessed. Obsessive was the word I was looking for. This obsessive fixation upon your relational status, especially those of you that struggle with that, being single. And I'm not offering you something lesser. I don't know if you can see it, but to live a life consumed and over, overtaken and overwhelmed with love for God and love for people is a much better life than living a life consumed and overtaken and overwhelmed and obsessed with where you're at as far as your relational status, whether you're single or whether you're married. A life consumed with love for God and love for people, and that's why you're not thinking about it instead of numbing yourself some way so that you don't have to think about it anymore. It's a better life. It's a more joyful life. What God asks for us, yes, ultimately is, is first about his glory and the furthering of his gospel. That's his big initiatives, and, and if we belong to him, that should be what we care about most as well. But what always comes along with that is better than what we would have done if we weren't doing that you got to decide if you're going to believe that or not. Some of that, that will make the difference for some of you on whether or not this helps you or not. Can you believe what God offers and what God commands is better for me than what I would do myself? Can I buy that? And I'm just asking you, look at, look at the evidence around you. Look at your own life. Look at the lives of people you know. See if the evidence does not point to being enraptured with love for God and love for people. Living a life of, of selfless sacrifice for the sake of others. Not being so overly focused with where you wish you were right now. See if, see if there's evidence that you could point to that, that maybe that is a better existence than the alternative. I'm not trying to jump on you. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to pull you to something better. I'm offering you something that God has, has laid out for you as a precious gift. 
Will you take it, friend? That's the question. Will you believe it? It's not unlike the gospel itself in that way. Paul says that we can marry or stay single. But either way, these things are temporary. And we must be people whose hearts and eyes are pointed towards eternity. As is made vibrantly clear here and elsewhere, if we do marry, part of our service to God now becomes serving and loving our spouse. So Paul is in no way advocating neglecting those duties. Already kind of covered that. Just want to make sure somebody in here, some married guy in here didn't find his life verse. (laughs) I'm doing a lot of easy chair time now. Guess what? Because I'm living like I'm not married. I'm a Bible guy. No, you're not. Knock it off. We'll send the squad after you. Uh, He is saying that if you are single by God's grace, whether for a season or all of your life, you should rejoice in the ability to be a holy reflection to the world of God's goodness, love, and glory, being devoted to him alone. That's something to rejoice over. Whether you're single right now and it's for a season, as God prepares you for marriage at some point, or whether God has indeed gifted you for lifelong singleness, either way, friend, It's a gift. Either way, you're experiencing the grace of God. Either way, to follow him in that, whatever that looks like, is going to lead to more joy for you and more glory for him. Uh, And to live a life devoted to him alone is is a beautiful thing. And it's something we should celebrate. It's not something we should be suspicious of. And that's where we've not done a good job as a church. If you're a single person here, I don't even mean this church so much. I don't think we're the worst at it, to be honest. Uh, but I, I've seen other things and been other places. I heard of a young adults group one time. I think it was called, um, hold on, I'll get it. It was called Pears and Spares. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, whoever, whoever the young adult leader was and the pastor that let that slip by, like, come on, guys, come on, right? So that communicated a, communicated a pretty sweet message to the singles in that church. You're the perpetual third wheel. Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, So I'm just saying, sometimes we haven't done a good job. Sometimes, especially as as Protestants, man, we've just, we've dropped the ball on this one. We do, we do have a very vibrant and I think healthy view of marriage. and, And I think we need to emphasize that. And it is normative for many people, the majority of people, but we need to not be suspicious and we need to not downplay the beauty of the fact that We are told in 1 Corinthians 7 that God gifts some to be married. God gifts some for singleness. And and if you look at the track record uh, throughout church history, the people that God gifts for singleness, man, they're wrecking balls for the kingdom. They do some really cool stuff. Now, it doesn't mean married people can't. Again, don't set this up in your mind as, well, is is married my better option to serve Jesus or is is being single? That's not even the way it's talked about here. Being married for God's glory, hallelujah, that's good. Being single for God's glory, hallelujah, that's good. They're good if they're for God's glory. As much as there are many right reasons to be single, uh, like being gifted and called by God, um, or also if you're patiently trusting God while you are single and devoting yourself to kingdom work, there's also wrong reasons to be single. Uh, And I'm just going to go through those quickly. So, I don't know if this happens a whole lot, but somebody could say, I, I'm just gifted for singleness, or I'm just waiting on God in this season uh, and, and patiently you know, trusting him. But, but really what could be driving them is fear based on bad uh, situations in the past, abuse, things like that. Listen, I don't want to trivialize that. I know that can be traumatizing. I've seen it firsthand, dealt with it firsthand. 
Um, but the reality is anytime you're letting the, any decision in your life, especially big ones, be driven by fear, it's, it's not going to go well. And so there needs to be healing in that. There needs to be a community of people come around you, work through those things, pray through those things, and let the truth of God come in and, and heal those wounds uh, by the power of his spirit. But, but please don't decide and or direct your life in regards to these things based upon fear. Uh, another reason is insecurity. Sometimes people just believe this, this really pervasive misunderstanding that for somebody to be single means that they're broken or messed up or they're just kind of rejected, that they're the spare parts, right? You got pairs and spares. I'm still just super frustrated about that, honestly, but um, that's, that's just not accurate. And so any insecurity that has come from that misnomer, uh, you know, and I've heard of people saying, you know, that, that they'll be a part of a church and people will take them aside all the time and try to, try to push them towards marriage. And, and the reality is, man, people just need to read the Bible. It's, it's not everybody needs to be married right now. And that's okay. Praise God. As a matter of fact, there's, there's, a, there's a very diligent group of single people here that are able to give time and, and, and talent to the furthering of God's kingdom and, and gospel ministry largely because they are single, and I'm really thankful for that, that they aren't wasting their singleness. Praise God. Uh, but don't let insecurity be the reason you make that decision. Don't, don't hide behind, I'm waiting for God's will, but really it's just you've believed this lie that you're not worth marrying or that nobody would want you or whatever it is. That's, that's not true. Um, selfishness. Sometimes people are just selfish, man. Sometimes they just want to do things their way. They see, they have enough of an idea. Their, their idea of marriage is, is unidealized enough that they understand, like, that's going to mean I have to, like, serve somebody else a lot. Burnt, don't want to do that. So <laughs> I feel like I have the gift of singleness. You might just be selfish, and you should knock it off <laughs> because God could use uh, a spouse to sharpen you and make you better and make you more holy and like him, uh, which would be good for you. Uh, sometimes it's condemnation. Sometimes people feel like they've messed up either sexually in the past or with relationships, and they just feel like literally they don't deserve uh, God to bring somebody good and, and, and that would love Jesus and, and run alongside them um, and, 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 and to have a healthy marriage. They just, they're, they're condemned about it. They believe lies about it. Don't, don't believe that. Redemption is available for everybody. If you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you, and he's done with it, and he's not going to withhold good things from you uh, because you messed up in the past. That's not the way God does things. That doesn't mean that consequences, there aren't consequences for your choices. Sometimes that is the case. Uh, but the reality is you should not live in condemnation and you should not make the decision that, I'm, well, there's no way God would ever let me have a, a good godly spouse because of what I've done. That's, that's, that's bad theology. Doesn't work that way, Okay. The power and the promise of the gospel can vanquish every single lie that single people are tempted to believe. The power and the promise of the gospel can vanquish every single lie that single people are tempted to believe. The power of the gospel, it vanquishes lies like this, that because you're single, you're either unloved or unlovable. A lot of single people believe they are unloved or that they are unlovable. It's not true. Um, I, I posted something recently, and it, really, it, it touched me, and, and it really makes sense here, so I just want to share it. It's very short. There was a surgeon. I, I don't know the background, but it, it seemed like maybe over in the Middle East, maybe in, in a war zone or something. I, if that's not right, it, it doesn't really matter, but that's, that's the sense I got from it. And so he says he, he was operating on this girl, and she needed O blood, and, she, and they didn't have any, and, but her twin brother was O 
type O. And so uh, the doctor said he described to the little boy it was a matter of life and death. And he said the little boy thought for a minute and uh, said he said he said goodbye to his parents and, and went along with the doctor. And the doctor didn't think about it for at first. He didn't understand. And, and the little boy sat down and they, they hooked him up to take the blood that they needed for his sister. And the little boy looked at the doctor and said, so when am I going to die? Because he thought what was happening was he was going to give his blood to his sister. And that, well, that meant he wasn't going to have any, and so he was going to die. Of course, that wasn't the case. But the question is, I would ask you is, based on the decision that little boy made, was that little girl loved? That little girl was loved. I don't know if anybody else loved her, but her brother loved her. Because he thought that doctor was asking him to give his life for hers. And he didn't think about it very long, and he did. And I want to say to you, friend, you're loved because somebody gave his blood for you. But it wasn't just a pint. He gave it all. And he did die. He became sin so that yours could be forgiven. And so please do not treat the beauty of that as if it doesn't matter. You are loved. And because you're loved that perfectly and that wonderfully in Christ, that demolishes the idea that you're unlovable. The other way the power of the gospel vanquishes lies that we believe is, uh, you know, a lot of people struggle with loneliness that are, that are single. And, and the, the truth is the gospel makes us family. Like John Stott's example, uh, my own life if, if we have genuine community and beautiful friends that our lives are lashed together with in, in the real sense that the Bible calls us to, yes, you may, you, you may be called by God or you may be in a season of singleness, uh, but you don't have to be lonely. You absolutely can have vibrant, life-giving relationships, and just because the love is not of the type that's found in a marriage does not mean you're going to be unloved, ignored, cast aside, uh, and there can be much beauty in that for either a season or for a lifetime if somebody's gifted by God in that way. So the power of the gospel demolishes the lie that you're unloved or unlovable. It demolishes the lie that you have to be lonely, that you've got to do this by yourself if you're not married. It's not the case. Um, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the gospel um, it tells us and it shows us that any struggle with loneliness is only temporary. Any struggle with loneliness is only temporary. And I want to say to you today, whether you're in a season of, of being single and you're not sure if God's called you to it and you've been the person like trying to pray that off of you, <laughs> God, I'll take all the gifts you got for me, but if you're gifting me for singleness, I'd rather not have that one. Thank you, right? Just, you know, I know I get it whether you're that person or you know for a fact that God has called you to lifelong singleness, but, but it's still, you've got these, this torn set of emotions about it. I want to say to you, and I want you to believe this, and I, I want it to matter for you, that you, you will have a wedding day. Friend, you will have a wedding day. And it, it's nothing you've ever seen on Pinterest will even come close to rivaling this, this wedding. Revelation 19.7 says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. One day, 
when all sin and every effect that it has had upon this earth and the people in it, when every part of death and sin is vanquished and gone, there's going to be a celebration and it's going to be a wedding. And we in Ephesians 5 are called the bride of Christ. Every single one of us that have been made whole, that have been taken from death to life because of Christ, one day we're going to be at a wedding. It's going to be our wedding. It's going to be the final joining of us to the God that loves us. And it's going to be beautiful. And so nobody's going to have to go without a wedding. It's going to come. If it doesn't happen in this life, it's going to happen in eternity. And listen, I've been to a lot of weddings. I really like them. They're fun. It's beautiful because I've, I've, I don't do a wedding unless I spend the time with the people to get to know them and know that they're both Christians and, and we go through a lot of stuff about covenant and, you know, I need to start reading them some stuff in 1 Corinthians 7, see if I can scare them out of it, but uh, I'll add that to the, to the stuff. But anyways, weddings are beautiful, and, and part of it is because I know them, and it's, 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 it's joyous, and, 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 and God's in it, and His Spirit is always present, and that's, that's so beautiful. But some of it, friends, some of it, the reason I like weddings so much is because it, it reminds me of this, and it makes me look forward to this. And it re- Guys, I, I promise you, when we get to the wedding day where the groom... King Jesus, the glorious, is wed to his bride, the church. We will forget every other wedding we've ever been to. It'll, it'll fade away into obscurity because it will pale in comparison to that day. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a wedding. It's going to be awesome. Let's set our eyes towards eternity. Let's set our hearts that way. Let's let our focus be there. And not let our mind be consumed and our heart be consumed by the things of this world. Even something so pressing as our relational status. May we be a people whose eyes and hearts are focused on eternity. May we be a people who are free from the bondage of believing that our relational status defines us. And may we be a people who never covet the marriage or singleness of another, knowing that God calls and gifts us each one for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that even though uh, large amounts of people can, can begin to believe certain ways about certain things, God, just specifically, even this, even though most people uh, to some degree have a skewed idea about what it means to be single. Uh, they, they have this idea that something must be wrong, God. I thank you that that doesn't have to be true. Lord, help us not to think just because that the majority of a culture or the majority of a people that they think a certain way means that that just has to be true. God, may we understand that your word is true. That your word is true and it's eternal. So God, when it comes to singleness, I pray for every single person that is in that relational status, God, that right now they are not married and they're not in the in-between state, but they're single. And they're devoted solely and only to you. God, I ask that they would be in this season. I ask, God, that whether it's, it's for now or whether it's something you've called them to for life, that they would have joy in it. I ask, God, that they would be consumed and overwhelmed with love for you and love for people. That would take, it would draw out the poisonous sting that comes along with singleness because of deception and because of lies that we believe. Lord, may we understand that singleness is a beautiful gift. If it's something that you've given, if it's something that you've given grace for so that someone can devote their life
whether for a little bit or for all of their life. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's a beautiful thing. It's a grace from you. It's a gift from you. Thank you, God, that you don't let us just rush headlong into things that we're not ready for. Thank you, God, that you give us your word that allows us to be able to navigate these big issues principally and to understand uh, what your wisdom is concerning it. Thank you we're not on our own when it comes to these things. God, I pray for every single person that has believed lies about themselves because they are not yet married, that somehow they've bought this lie, that they are unloved or unlovable or that there's something wrong with them. God, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come and you would break those deceptions down into dust and so that they would not rule uh, in their lives anymore. I ask God that their minds and their hearts would be set free to understand that uh, being single is, is, is a gracious thing. It's a gift. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, and there's such potential for eternal, eternal impact and for uh, the glory of your name and for the furthering of your kingdom from somebody that is devoted wholly to you. Help us, God, as your church to think better and talk better about these things. God, help us not to push people. Help us not to unintentionally cause insecurities in people. God, may we think about it correctly. May we celebrate those who are uh, single and joyous about it. May we, may we celebrate those that are secure in their, in their mind and their heart, knowing that God has gifted them either for this time or for all of their life. May we celebrate that. And may we see it the way you see it. God, help us not to pit marriage and singleness against each other or put them in a race for holiness, but may we understand that you gift and call each person individually and that both uh, devotion to you alone is good and marriage is good and that you use all kinds of people to get your will done. So, God, may we, may we just rejoice in that, and may we be thankful for that, uh, and just help us in this, God. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies, or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.